person. We worship a person. We live out of a relationship with a person. If your Christianity isn't rooted and centered on the person of Jesus Christ, you're missing the mark. He saved you and you love him. You don't love the church in comparison. You don't love the kingdom. You don't love his word. You love him. Of course, he and his word are synonymous to a great extent. But it's about the person of Jesus. He talks about the elementary teachings about Christ. And we go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God, instructions about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. So this is number two of six. So you know what you're going to get uh, when I'm on, but you don't know when I'm on, so you have to come anyway. So there we go. Little recap on repentance from acts that lead to death. Acts that lead to death are not sinful acts. That isn't the best uh, way of translating that phrase. Acts that lead to death are acts of useless rituals. See, religious people enter into religious rituals, thinking by carrying out these rituals, somehow God will be pleased with them and give them salvation. But he's not. They're useless and they lead to death. The only thing that God is pleased with is we come to him in faith and in repentance of our sin and we live for him. Now, some of the practices that we do, they look like rituals. We took communion this morning. We broke bread, we ate it, we drank wine, we sang. You might say, well, they're rituals. They don't save us. It's faith in Christ and a turning away from our own life that saves us. So three things we looked at when we looked at repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. It is not saying sorry for your sin. You can say sorry for your sin and you can cry a tremendous amount, but you haven't necessarily repented. You do the same thing again and you make the same noises all over again and you say the same things again only to do the same thing again. Repentance is a turning around in our thinking and that's possible by the grace of God. Repentance will always lead to a change of direction. If you were living a certain way and you came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and received him as your saviour, yet carried on living the same, repentance did not take place. It's not possible, having repented, not to turn and move in the direction, as it were, back to God. Before God saved you, you were walking away from God. Now he causes you to walk back to him. It's a turnaround. The illustration is the prodigal son. He went from his father... He came to his mind, he got up, and he came back to his father. That was true repentance. And when he starts to pour out the speech, oh, I'm so sorry, I always get the impression God knew that he was sorry, not by what he said, but by his actions. 
and he almost embraces him in the middle of this speech that he's making and saying, the speech is not important, son. I know you have turned and come back. That's what I'm looking for. The third thing could lead to some controversy and thought, and I encourage you to examine the scriptures yourself. I propose to you that when God wants to turn you around, he has to reveal things to you. In the revelation of what is wrong in your life, he gives you the grace to receive it and to turn and to come back to him. If God does this again and again and again and again and you constantly reject the grace of God to turn, then that grace will run out. And you will not be able to turn and come back. We looked at several examples of scripture and if you don't agree with me on what I'm saying, it's important that you examine the scriptures yourself. Because I believe that constant rejection when God is offering us grace can put us in a very dangerous place when when we want to turn and come back, that grace is not available to us anymore. Today we're moving on to the second of these uh, elementary teachings, these foundational teachings, which is faith in God. We've spoke a lot in this church about faith. A couple of years ago, I think I did a series between 15 and 20 based on Hebrews 11 and the great chapter of faith and we looked at all the personalities involved and we examined faith from every angle so, and we talk about faith all the time. There's, there's four types of faith as I see it. There's what I would call saving faith. The faith to get saved. The faith to be redeemed and start this new life with God. That's a type of faith. Secondly, we have what we call doctrinal faith. Faith in what God has written in his book. Some people say to me, you know, I feel so distant from God, as though God isn't there. Well, I don't understand what you're saying because my New Testament, Jesus says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So even though you feel may be distant from God, the reality is he's in the same place he was when you felt he was there because he can't go away from you. His commitment is to you even though your commitment is sometimes frail in relationship to him. So he is always there. That is doctrinal faith. I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, it doesn't make sense to the natural mind, but if my Bible says he was then he was, and that's the end of the story. I have faith in what this book is saying. That's doctrinal faith. Then we have a living faith. A living faith is when we believe that God is speaking to us, either from his word or directly by the spirit or through the prophetic. We believe that God is saying something, and so we get up from where we are and we do what he is saying. Calling you to ministry, calling you to help somebody, to support somebody, calling you to give finances, calling you to Kenya, whatever it could be, we respond with faith. That's called living faith. There's a fourth type of faith, which we call the gift of faith. The gift of faith is where we are developing faith in our lives out of a relationship with God, but sometimes something needs more faith than we have. 
And God injects, as it were, by the Holy Spirit within us, uh, a shot of faith, like adrenaline, to the body. Have you ever tried raising the dead? It doesn't matter if you haven't, not many have. I've tried it uh, at least once, maybe twice, I can't remember. Definitely once I remember trying it. It didn't work. Okay. Now, I believe to do that, maybe there are some men, women, who operate with faith that they could do this quite easily. But if I was going to raise the dead, I know I would need a gift of faith, a supernatural empowerment at that precise moment to do this thing. It didn't happen. I won't go into any more of that. It doesn't really matter why it didn't happen, but it didn't happen on that particular day. So I want to talk about faith, but not all of those faiths. I want to talk about one of the faiths, which is your saving faith. I want to clearly establish whether you have experienced the faith by which you got saved. The Bible talks about vain faith. Faith that's not genuine. It's not real. It's spurious. It doesn't work. And it's a warning to us, asking the question, is your faith genuine faith? Now, I'm not preaching this to cause you to be afraid or even convince you you're not saved. Every sermon I stand up to preach has great warnings in it. I don't know why. I hope this season will pass so I can preach on some other stuff. Maybe the, the other foundational doctrines aren't so scary, but I don't know. They might be. Anyway, so... It's a warning in this sermon. I'm not trying to convince you that you're not saved. I want you, at the end of when I speak, to be so assured. I'll even give you a, a checklist, and you can tick these things off, and you can go out of here thinking, Whew, I'm born again at least. Based on Philip's <laughs> teaching and doctrine and what the Word says, it looks like I am soundly saved. That's important. See, there are people who might think they're saved, and they're not. Wouldn't it be awful if in the judgment, and I'm standing and I'm looking at all the people who I've ministered to and shepherded and helped and led, and some of them aren't saved. Wouldn't that be terrible? Wouldn't I feel awful that I hadn't preached clearly enough the word of God that somehow you came under the radar and I never dealt with your doubts and all the other things pertaining to your faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation, salvation is by faith alone. Christ died for the sins of the whole world. What that means is everyone who was ever born in history, who is living today, or will be born in the future before Jesus comes, Christ died for every one of them. That was his part. Now, we are not saved because Christ died for us. If that is true, then the whole world will be saved, and we would believe in what is called universalism, that in the end Christ died for everyone, and somehow everyone will be saved and none will be lost. I don't personally believe that. There are some good, sound, solid Christians that do believe that. 
And they're entitled to their opinion, as all of us are. Christ, yes, has died for the whole world, but we have a part to play. And that is responding to him in faith, in saving faith, and in our response, then salvation is ours. You're not saved because Christ died on the cross for you. You personally are saved because you put faith in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not diminishing what Christ did for one minute. Please hear me. But everyone's personal salvation depends upon their faith in what Christ did for them. I've got several stories I want to share with you this morning, biblical stories. The first one is found in Acts chapter 16. It's the story of Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are on a missionary trip and they've gone to the city of Philippi and in their minds, they didn't plan on going there. God sent them there. They were responding by faith. And in their time there, what they thought they would do or what God wanted them to do was establish a church to get believers together. Probably they would be Jewish who had now opened in their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ and gather them together in something of a church. You read that in Acts chapter 16. In that particular chapter, Paul and Silas are walking in the public areas and a woman comes behind them. I get the impression she's youngish and she's, she's crying out, these are servants of the Most High God. Listen to what they have to say. Now that was absolutely true what she was calling out. But Paul is feeling uncomfortable about this. Whether he discovers or the Holy Spirit shows him, this woman is in league with the devil. She has demon spirits within her and she is used by some influential men or men and women to gain finance for them by predicting people's future. And so he's uncomfortable Eventually, after a few days, he turns around and he casts the spirit out of this woman. She is liberated and set free and she can no longer do what she did before and possibly doesn't even want to do what she did before. So these people who were gaining from her have lost their means of gain. They go to see the magistrate. They stir the magistrate up to say, Paul and Silas are causing trouble in our city. You need to flog them and imprison them. And so they face trial. So they get flogged, they get put in prison, and they're facing, they're going to face trial. That night, God appears through the power of the Spirit and shakes the very prison where they are. The doors burst open, the chains fall off the prisoners, and the man who is responsible, the one who has charge over them, knows if all these prisoners escape, he's, he's dead. He will be held accountable and he will die in their place. So he's terrified at what's going on. Paul cries out to him not to worry. The man says it's no good. He takes his sword and he's about to kill himself when Paul says, you mustn't do this. He says, all right then, what will save me? How can I be saved from this situation? He wasn't asking Paul how he could receive salvation from sin. It wasn't a question of redemption. That wasn't in his head at all. How could it have been in his head? He didn't know anything. He thinks, how can I be saved from this awful situation? 
Be blessed, little fella. That's it. It's more fun when you're bigger preaching, but when you're little, it's hard work. Oh, no. So he's crying out, well, all right, then how can I be saved from this terrible situation I'm in? That's what he's asking. How will my life be spared? You know, Paul gives him one answer. He says, believe on Jesus and you'll be saved. Can I say to you this morning, whatever problem you have, if anyone comes to you with a problem, do you know what the answer is? Jesus. <laughs> that joke about Sunday school is true. The answer to every problem in your life, I don't care what it is, financial, domestic, children, husband and wife, whatever it is, the answer is Jesus. Believe on Jesus because he is the saviour. He doesn't only save your soul from sin. He saves you in every situation if, if, if you believe. Do you know, you don't believe in Jesus only with your head. You believe in Jesus with both your head and your heart. There is a difference. See, believing with your head won't necessarily cause a change in you, in your actions, in your direction. But when you believe in your heart, it's your heart that is the wellspring of life that motivates you and moves you forward in a new direction. Paul is saying to him, listen, stop, stop, don't do this. No one's going to escape tonight. Just believe. Believe in what he says. Believe in Jesus. What are you talking about? Who is this man? How can this man come and help me? He says, no, I need to have some time to explain it to you. He says, right, we'll close everything down. You come to my home and you explain. And he doesn't only explain how Jesus will save him in this awful situation, but how he will save his soul and how he will live eternally with God. Of course, the jailer's just ready for it. He grabs it with both hands and he receives Christ as his saviour. He believes, he has faith, he believes in what he says. Salvation starts simply with believing, having faith. After that, actions follow. See, the prodigal, when he sat amongst the pigswill, he said to himself, if I were to go back to my father, he would receive me and my life would change. Now, I don't know how many times he thought that in his head. Maybe a hundred times. But it got to a point when it wasn't just a thought in his head, it became a belief, a thought, a reality in his heart. And the minute... The reality struck his heart, he was up on his feet and moving in a new direction. I don't believe that any of you are just saved in your head, but it would be terrible if you were. Because if that's true, you're not saved at all. You believe or think 
you're saved. That's what I want to remove this morning. By grace, by the mercy and love of God, God has offered you his wonderful gift of salvation. But it is through your faith, your believing in your head and your heart, that you are saved. Genuine, biblical faith, not a spurious faith that is simply of the head, but one that is of the heart and leads to transformation. Faith in the head doesn't lead to transformation. Only faith in the heart leads to transformation. It's believing, not simply knowing. I want to make sure you have the genuine article. In Acts chapter 8, we have a story of two people's conversions here. One is not genuine, but it appears to be genuine, and the other is genuine. In Acts chapter 8, again, we read this story of Philip who goes down to Samaria to preach the gospel. He has a crusade, and in the preaching of the gospel, he heals the sick, he casts out evil spirits, and people come to Christ. They believe, and in their believing, he has a baptismal service, and he baptizes them. When the church at Jerusalem, at the center of things, hear what's going on, they send Peter and John down to Samaria that they might pray for these new converts, that they might receive the fullness of the Spirit. Here they're going to pray that the Spirit will come into them, and in coming into them there will be some manifestations of the power of God entering these people. Simon, who was a sorcerer, lived in this place, and he apparently comes to Christ. It says in Acts chapter 8 and verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. On the face of it, you'd say Simon was born again. He believed and he was baptized. That's the end of it. When Peter and John come to him and they start to talk to him, they pick up that his heart has not believed, that his head has believed. Listen what Peter says to him in 8 and 23. For I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. To be captive to sin is to be captive to Satan. In other words, he's saying Satan is still ruling in your heart. Although you say you believe and you got baptized, the reality is it's spurious. It's not valid. It's not real. Your believing was not real because your believing was not from a heart to receive God and to turn away from your sin. It was about gain for yourself. As he walked around and saw all the things that Philip did, he thought, wow, 
People pay me big money now as a sorcerer. If I get some of this power, they're going to pay me even more. You see, his heart was wrong. Now you're thinking, no, he was saved. It says he believed and he was baptized. You might know people who say they believe and they're baptized, but are they really born again? You say, don't scare me, Philip. I was on solid ground until I came here this morning. But I want you to ask questions because I don't want you to go under the radar. You understand what I'm saying? It's not because I'm trying to pull you out. It's not because I'm trying to make you feel bad. I want you to make sure. Absolutely sure. Then we read about Philip when he finishes the crusade or when he's even in the middle of it, we don't know. He's lifted by God and he's taken to minister to one guy, an Ethiopian man. And he's sitting on his chariot. He seems to be a wealthy sort of person. And he's reading the scriptures in Isaiah. And he can't make head or tail of it. And so God provides this person to explain the scriptures, Philip, to him. He jumps up on the chariot with him. Someone's driving the chariot. He's explaining to him all about salvation and Jesus coming and everything else. And he explains about baptism. And then he says this in verse 36. He says, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I get baptized? I believe. Let me get baptized. Have you got NIVs? We've got a missing verse. Did you know? Number 37 isn't there, is it? Yeah, yeah. Have you look at this? Okay. Now, Sonia, Sonia's got the AV. You're on safe ground. You, you haven't got the NIV yet, have you? No, authorised. She's got the AV. She's probably got verse 37. But if you look at the NIV, it's not even there. 36, 38 he goes. Okay, so 36 says this. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptised? Verse 36. Then it goes straight to 38. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Sorry. Oh, hang about. <laughs> I've got an answer for you, okay. Goes on to 38 and says, And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and were baptised. Let's put, we'll see what 37 is. If these things happen in your Bible, or there is a little letter there, always go down the bottom and see if it says something. It's got F in mind for that missing verse, and it says this. Verse 37, ah, now, why is it not in here? Usually if verses are missing, it's because they weren't in the original manuscripts. That's all. It's not that it didn't happen. They tried to give you the text in the original manuscripts. And sometimes they'll put verses in and they will say to you, these verses were not in the original manuscripts. Now I think this verse should be here. And I think they should say it wasn't in the original manuscripts. Why? Because the verse really suits my sermon this morning. <laughs> I'm honest. Listen, you can trust my honesty. Okay. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may get baptised. You see the difference? Simon the sorcerer saw something, saw a way of gaining, said, I believe, can I get baptised? Of course you can get baptised, but he wasn't saved. This man says, I see water, I believe, can I get baptised? 
And Philip, in his wisdom, and he might have said it to Simon the sorcerer. He said, if you believe in your heart, you can. Now, Simon the sorcerer didn't. This man did. He said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If you come to me or anyone comes to me and say, Philip, can I get baptized? I'm going to ask you some questions because it's on the confession of your faith that I baptize you. I don't know if you're born again or not. I don't know if your salvation is spurious or not. I don't know if it's the real thing. I will say, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the only Son of God, born of God, came forth from God, born of the seed of God. You say, yes, I do. Do you believe that God raised him from the dead, the physical resurrection of the man Christ Jesus for the justification of your sins? You say, yes, I do. Do you want to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Saviour and you'll follow him wholeheartedly and be obedient to him? And if you say, yes, I will, I'll baptise you. Because it's on the confession of your faith. Now, you might have lied to me about all of those things. And I think Simon the sorcerer lied about those things. Because I'm pretty sure that he would have asked him in the same way he asked the Ethiopian. So, one is saved and one isn't. One is saved, one isn't. Your baptism doesn't save you. That is just one of those things I spoke about, one of these practices that we can go through thinking it is. I've been to court many times with uh, certain Iranian, uh, Iranian people and they have said, uh, I want you to stand up in court and say I'm a Christian so I can stay in the country because they want to deport me. So I ask them those questions. And so I have to go to court and say, I baptise this person on the confession of their faith, and as far as I know, they're Christians. I can't tell the court if they're Christians or not. The court seems to be very happy if they've been baptised. That's all. Did you baptise them? Yes, I did. Oh, that's good enough. We'll tick the box Christian. <laughs> but God doesn't tick the box Christian. God doesn't. God is looking at the intent of the heart, and he knows if the box gets ticked or not. Simon believed with his head. The Ethiopian believed with both his head and his heart. Listen, your head is important. Your head is vital to this business. Okay? Hang on to your marbles. Don't roll them down the aisle when you come to Jesus. You need to hang on to them to work out this salvation stuff all the way through your life. Is it possible then to receive God's grace of salvation, but it be worthless? like Simon the Sorceress. It says in 2 Corinthians 6 and 1, 2 Corinthians 6 and 1, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. So you possibly can receive the grace of God to be saved, but it's useless. It's in vain. It doesn't work. That's scary. Because it has to be Genuine faith. Salvation, as Simon discovered, is not just believing what you want. And baptism 
But it's important that we believe the right things. I've never been a great one for the sinner's prayer. Some evangelists are good at this. They grab as many people as they can and rush them through a sinner's prayer. And they go, 50 people came to Christ tonight. A little thing goes in the back of my head, did they? Now, I'm not going to pour cold water on anything. And if one of them and 49 didn't, that's absolutely fine with me. And it's not my job to judge that anyway. Only God knows. But grabbing someone and getting them to pray the sinner's prayer does not get them into the kingdom of heaven. Faith must be operating. Repentance must be operating. Obedience must be operating in the human heart for salvation to take place. And I'm so glad it's like that. Not anyone can just be whooshed into the kingdom because they pray some prayer. It is not as simple as that. So, what we believe, how we believe, and the actions required as proof of our faith. Can I say saving faith comes as a package? Now you get your tick-off list. You ready for it? Okay. Five things. And you have to tick off your own list. And if you're in doubt about any of these, come see me. And we'll make sure that you don't escape. Because everyone who comes (laughs) under my ministry, I don't want them not going in in the last analysis. You with me? You with me? Okay, number one. What we must believe. We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That when Jesus came forth as a baby out of the womb of Mary, he was 100% God. And at the same time, he was 100% man. Now you go, I don't get it. I don't get most of the stuff that's in here. I don't have to get it. I have to believe what it says. Jesus was God come in the flesh. That means, and I'm not not wanting to throw stones or anything, that means Jehovah's Witnesses can't be saved with Jehovah Witness doctrine because they do not believe that Jesus was God come in the flesh. Mormons, the Latter-day Saints, cannot be born again Christians because they don't believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh. Now, they're not the enemy. We don't hate them. We want them to receive the truth that they too might be saved. That's what. And any other religious sect or group that doesn't believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh, they cannot be saved. We must believe that Jesus is God. God himself come in the flesh. It says in John 8 and 24, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. A man, a woman who doesn't believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh will die in their sins. Now, God will deal with that in the end but they will die in their sin. The second thing we're to believe is that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. 
his body, the body that was put in the tomb, body of, of flesh and bone that went into the tomb, that body came out of the tomb. That Jesus is a man today somewhere in the heavens and that Jesus will come back to earth as a man and he will stand in front of this man. Now, if this man has died and buried, then somehow God is going to resurrect Herman in his bodily form. And God will judge him in his bodily form. And I believe we will continue. I believe. That's all right. I believe we will continue in our bodily form forever and ever and ever and ever and I will not be a ghost or a spirit flying around the universe. I want to live with my feet on the ground. I want to worship Jesus. I want to see Jesus. I want to love Jesus. I want to kiss Jesus. I want to serve Jesus with my hands and with my mind and with my whole body. That's what I want to do for the rest of eternity. Do you believe that? He's not some phantom spirit. And nor will you be a phantom spirit. Jesus was raised in his physical body for our justification. And because he was raised, we will be raised also in human bodily form. Amen? You've got to say amen to that. I'll tell you. The preaching doesn't get better. Okay. Okay. Now, I know you're in Perivale, but you can get excited about those things. How you believe is important. You must believe with your heart and not just with your head. We call this intellectual assent to the gospel. Knowing a historical Jesus. Knowing that this person came and did something. The demons know who Jesus is. The demons know. It says this in Luke 8 and 28. In the, the demons responding to Jesus, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Demons knew it. Now, demons couldn't be saved. Their consciences, consciences have been severed. They cannot be saved. Their chance of salvation has gone, if you agree with my theology, but we won't go there either. Never mind. Mark 1.24, again, a demon speaking, I know who you are. Speaking to Jesus, you're the Holy One of God. See, they had knowledge of who he was. They recognised him for who he was, but they could not have faith in their heart and believe in him because it wasn't open for them to do this. But it's open for humanity to do it. It's open for us to do it. And it says in James 2 and 19, this is James speaking, he says, listen, even the demons believe and they shudder as a result of it. It doesn't save them. See, you can believe with your head or your heart. I will die for what I believe in my heart, but I would not die for what I believe in my head. That's the truth. If you give mental assent to Jesus and all that he did and the Bible and everything else, but you don't believe to the extent that you would die for this one, there's a possibility you don't believe. 
You believe in your head. Knowing the truth with your head is not believing. But it's the truth in your heart. Believing without repentance is a vain belief. If you come to Jesus Christ and accept him as your saviour, but you do not repent. Now we know what repentance is. Repentance is recognising there is wrong, coming to the decision that we're going to turn around from our life, the way we've lived our life, the way we thought, and we're going to start moving back to God. Remember John the Baptist when he was baptising in the Jordan? It says the scribes and the Pharisees came to him and just to win face with the people, they said, well, baptise us as well. He said, no way, Jose. He said, if you want me to baptise you, you live as though you were repentant in your heart. Let's read that verse to you. It's found in Luke 3, 7 and 9. You brood of vipers... Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Isn't that what Peter said to Simon the sorcerer? When I see fruit coming out of your heart, then, then I'll know you're saved. Until then, nothing has taken place in your life. The fifth one is the actions that are required. James 2 and 20 says, You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless and dead? The deeds are the evidence in our lives. Do you know what I think is terrible when I hear it? When two colleagues at work meet after working together for 10 years and realise they were both Christians. What does that do to you? I'm thinking, there was no evidence. You were just like everyone else. You spoke like everyone else. You acted like everyone else. That's not good enough. If we believe and we are saved, you say some stupid, weird stuff. You do what appears from the world's perspective to be weird. And you say strange things like, are you sick? Let me pray for you. <laughs> yeah, out of it. <laughs> and if they say, fine, they think you'll go home and kneel by your bed. But you slap your great big hand on them there and there in the middle of the office. And you say, in the name of Jesus. And they go, my God, he's crazy. <laughs> anyone. <laughs> the dirty jokes are going and your ear is there like everyone else and inside you're going, oh, I wish I shouldn't, I shouldn't be doing this. Uh, get up and walk away. Yeah. They'll say, what's, what's wrong with him? He's a Christian. He's a Christian. Amen. Amen. There should be evidence, evidence to convict you. If you stood on trial there should be enough evidence to convict you that you were a Christian and you should be put to death. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Your neighbours should know. Everyone should know. They should be able to work it out. There's something different. That's the proof. 
Faith without works is not faith at all. Do you have biblical faith? Could you tick them off? Say, oh, praise the Lord. I'm glad I'm saved, at least by Philip's definition. <laughs> I want you to be sure. You understand? I'm not here to criticise you, condemn you, make you feel bad, make you feel you're not saved. That's not the purpose of the foundational doctrines. Because if we haven't got the foundational doctrines right, we can't build a Christian life. Repentance from acts that lead to death. Faith in God. Got four more to come. God bless you.